Happy 2024. We are back with episode 26 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. Uh, we all had a really nice holiday and are excited to be back and recording the next episode. Uh, since it's the start of the year, we want to spend a good portion of today's episode talking about our predictions for the year, what's going to happen with the office market, what's going to happen with industrial, what are the emerging corporate real estate trends that people are going to be talking about in 2024. So we're really excited to dive in to all of that. Um, starting first with what do we think is going to happen to the office market? Uh, let me set the stage here a little bit before we jump to Brian to share his thoughts. So over the holiday break, uh, a really, um, you know, like sterling owner of uh, class A and A plus office space, uh, KBS Realty Advisors based in Newport Beach, for one of their funds, they said, considering the current commercial real estate lending environment, this raises substantial doubt as to KB REITs 3, which is their third real estate fund, ability to continue as a going concern. So this is a 7.3 million square foot class A, A plus, mostly in CBD areas fund that is saying they may no longer exist depending on what happens later this year. So um, even though we've seen, uh, you know, uh, some more optimism in the economy at large over the last, call it 60 days with the Fed, you know, lowering rates and all of this, uh, or I guess signaling that they would lower rates at the, you know, first or second rate cut of the year. Um, it's still a very dire situation for office landlords. And is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? Uh, looking forward to hearing what you all think. Let me follow on that because, um, in preparation for the pod, I ran some reports that speak to exactly that. Um, if you don't, if you aren't aware of it, there's a cool report in CoStar. It's their forecast report. I ran it for the office sector in half a dozen markets across the country. And, and just so people understand, I, I know we don't do a lot of visual sharing, but here's what I'm looking at. And essentially what they do is they uh, chart uh, net deliveries, by which they mean um, known construction activity that's in process and uh, net absorption you know, net amount of space that's coming off the market or being added to the market in the course of a year. And between those two, they can come up with the uh, vacancy rate. And this runs from 2020 um, to today. And then two years forward, they do projections out to year end 2026. For the net absorption for the next two years, they're taking the trailing five-year average and running it on a straight line, assuming that's what might happen over the next two years. And based on that, in every market that I ran, the vacancy rate trend line is up and to the right. Um, for two more years, at least. And uh, so not good news for the KBS realties of the world. And um, this problem isn't going to go away in the next 12 months, um, according to the data. And I'll just run through a few of these numbers. They were super interesting. Um, you know, what happens in the next two years is dramatically impacted by net deliveries. This idea that some people put on the brakes and stopped construction, stopped planning for new office deliveries. Some markets didn't. And so you have this still ongoing delivery of new office space into these markets with uh, lackluster demand. But I'll just give you the numbers. I'm going to give you three numbers in each of these markets. The uh, Q1 2020 number, where we started, uh, today's vacancy number, and the projected vacancy rate at the year-end 2026. So San Francisco, Mark, was white hot in uh, Q1 2020. Vacancy rate 6%, 6.1%. By the way, as I, in my view, I've always used 10% as the dividing line between below 10%. Generally speaking, we see office rents rising above 10%. Generally speaking, we see office rents declining. 
So San Francisco is at 6.1 as of today, 26%. Projected for year end 2026, 32.6%. Brutal. Pro- poster child for the troubled markets out there. Um, Denver is interesting. Uh, 2020 was 10.7. Today it's 20.2, trending by year end 2026 to 24.8%. But also, you know, four years of million square foot deliveries beginning with year end 2023 and continuing um, in 2024. No, that's per quarter. So massive deliveries of new office space in Denver. They didn't put the brakes on quick enough. Um, did, uh, oh, and you you know the story of Seattle. Uh, 5.3% Q1 2020, 17.7% today projected up to 23, 21.3. Um, I'll just do... And then I did something fun. I, I have this working theory that small town America, smaller town America isn't hit as hard as the major metropolitan markets. And it sort of bears out. Like I went, okay, at random, Columbus, Ohio, strong market in 2020, 5.9% today, 9.1%. Projected to climb by year end 2026 to 9.5%. And with my 10% story, you could still see some rising rents in Columbus, Ohio. Same thing, Indianapolis, um, 7.7% in Q1 2020, 11.5% today. Um, and largely, they just had close to a million square feet delivered at year end 2023, which is largely what bumped that up to 11.5. Projected to increase to 13% by year end 2026. So everyone's trending up into the right, but depending where you are, big numbers, small numbers, um, rising rents, declining rents. It depends on the size of the market and the particulars of that city. Thank you, Professor <laughs> Jarvis. That's a lot to take in. Uh, Happy New Year, everyone. I break it down for... People that think, hopefully, like me, to very, um, you know, black and white basic thing. Owners that are going to have some sort of an event in 2024, 25, and 26, and owners that do not. And what do I mean by an event? Major lease roll or major vacancy or a capital event, re- have to renegotiate or replace Dan on the building. Owners that fall into those buckets are in a world of pain. Uh, and owners that do not are able to play the game that the market's going to come back, things are going to get better, and they're going to continue to send out proposals and try to do deals like the pandemic never happened. So in a, in a market like Boston, we've got some buildings that were you know, sold before the pandemic, five, six, seven, $100 a foot. One particular building, it's not sold yet, but it's under agreement at $194 a foot, class A minus, good quality building poor location, but uh, they had significant rent roll and probably had a debt problem and had to sell the building at a significant loss. We've heard all heard that story. Uh, But what I think, you know, my prediction is, is uh, hedged because I think if you have a very high quality building in a high quality location with a good, a good rent roll, you're going to be coming uh, out of a negotiation acting like the pandemic never happened because those owners are going to continue to send out proposals like the pandemic never happened. And they're going to continue to act like the building is, you know, in a market in 2020, 2019. The rest of the marketplace are going to be, you know, pushing rents down hard over the next uh, 12 months. Okay. Not, I, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, like Brian said, for those that uh, 
are tuning in for the first time in 2024, Happy New Year, even though it is uh, related to be saying that live. Um, and let's let's start with saying, let's go Huskies, right? I don't know who's watching the national championships tonight. I'm the only uh, Husky alum on this podcast, but let's go Huskies. Go dogs. Um, so let's get this party started for 2024, guys. I mean, I there's a couple things I want to bring up, which are um, related to what John and, and Brian just said. Um, and it's around an article that was in the Wall Street Journal today, juxtaposed against an article in the New York Post. So the journal writes that vacancy for office space across the country uh, is now uh, at an all-time high since 1979, okay? And in 1979, um, oh, sorry, the, the two previous highs, uh, record highs for that country, for the nation since 79 were in 86 and 91. Um, both times uh, it reached 19.3%, and that's, uh, again, nationwide. We're now at sitting at 19.6, up from 18.8 a year ago. Um, so pretty pretty substantial. Um, and in 91, it was all you know a result of the savings and loan crisis, and largely those two peaks at 19.3%, again, in 86 and 91, were, were, were a result of years of overbuilding. Um, and then, obviously, we had other issues that uh, factored into it. Um, so pretty substantial. And I think it's, you know, you look at where we were a year ago at 18.8% nationwide. Uh, if anyone guessed that we'd be up nearly a hundred basis points a year later, um, some probably would have guessed higher, some maybe not so much. Um, but it's interesting to see how this news gets carried through the masses and, you know, shared with the rest of us. Um, and back to my previous comment, juxtaposed against the New York Post. It's interesting to see what the big brokerage firms are using to help kind of promote those that they serve primarily, which is the landlords. And there's an article in the Post today that talks about um, how the office market in Manhattan is impervious to the to the woes uh, of of what's going on right now. But if you read the fine print, the the report that came out from the big brokerage firms um, notes that it's with the high end properties. Okay, so it's not to suggest um, they're not suggesting that. The office market in Manhattan is just, you know, going gangbuster. But if you read the fine print, it's for those buildings that are super high-end trophy buildings. And I think that's consistent with what we've been saying on this pod for well over a month, two months, three months, which is that there is definitely a flight to quality. In fact, I remember talking about that recently. I think it was on our last pod, which is that there, there are, there is leasing occurring. But as people try and get people back to the office, it's being primarily focused on those buildings that offer the best place to work in a place where people are, you know, excited or hopefully excited to be back in um, versus going to a building built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or even 90s, or in some cases, the early 2000s. So just be careful what you read this year. We've got a tremendous amount of vacancy to work through. We've got a lot of troubling matters that um, could force real commercial real estate into, you know, further woes. Um, but, you know, there is activity. People are leasing office space. Um but it's being primarily driven by those assets that offer the best place to work for their for their teams that occupy them. What I think is so interesting is that when you think about the question of what's going to happen to office rents in 2024, uh, because the real estate market is so incredibly inefficient, it actually becomes this extraordinarily challenging prediction to make, right? Like, I, I would be surprised if anyone that knows this space really well uh, would make a big money bet on which direction they think office rents is going to go. Um, and may maybe people would be more comfortable, which again, this goes against most forecasting, making a prediction on a three-year basis instead of a one-year basis. 
And just to explain that dynamic to people, because the real estate market is so inefficient, there is going to be a big segment of, of landlords, as Brian said earlier, that don't have capital events or lease rollover in their portfolio that are just going to act like the office market isn't damaged, isn't hurting, and they're going to keep rents where they are. So if you're trying to predict out on a 12-month basis, are rents higher or lower for office space you know, in December of 2024 as compared to January of 2024? It's hard to know because these players in this industry are not necessarily going to act rationally. So will it have come down by 2024? I don't know. I, I think that it probably will. I don't think it's going to have gone up, but I think that there will be a segment of the market that has just held firm. And again, I'm, I'm talking generally. Of course, there's going to be, um, you know, class A plus plus properties in great locations that are able to increase and uh, increase or at least maintain rents. Of course, that I think we all agree on that. But generally speaking, I think you're crazy if you believe that the supply demand imbalance for office space isn't going to worsen in 2024. And does that mean that office rents are going to be lower? It should, but that is probably unlikely to translate at least as uh, seriously as it should uh, by the end of the year. I agree 100%, Tucker. What I find almost comical is as you enter these markets, landlords know this and their brokers know this. So everyone's trying to position without spending real capital or doing anything other than just changing their marketing plan, trying to position their buildings as being a plus buildings. We, we've got this A plus asset. Mind it's 10 years old or 20 years older. You know, we haven't done the lobby in five years, 10 years, but they keep trying to make the case that their building is different than the rest of them in that class that we all know it's going to get beat up. So uh, be aware that you know landlords are doing it for two different reasons. One is they're, they've got a, a good quality tenant base, they've got good quality debt, and they can play the game because they're not going to play in today's environment because it reduces the capital value, or they're doing it because they have no other, their back's against the wall. And if they play it in today's environment, they lose their building, right? So you have to be aware of what your audience is and, and what you're negotiating strength and what you're negotiating against. Because, you know, a landlord that's a publicly traded REIT, like a Boston Properties or someone, at the end of the day, they're going to be sitting at these high rental rates and they're going to play that market because they do have some of the highest quality buildings, the newest buildings. But at the same time, they're also a cash flow focused company. So you can play a different negotiation strategy with a owner such as a Boston Properties, just to name one, because you know underlying what their motivations are versus a Blackstone that will hold the line because if they trade at below what they're asking, they might as well just turn the keys back. And you're doing that on a wide, um, wide range of locations around the country right now and redeploying capital in other areas like distressed debt funds or buying other buildings or buying new portfolios, right? So you have to really know who you're negotiating against. And a broker going out, running a survey, looking at five buildings and negotiating all the same way is not what's going to get you the most success in today's environment. You really have to dig under the hood and look at the ownership. Yeah. At the risk of sounding self-serving, <clears throat> I said it before on the pod, the role in this moment, the role of the tenant side broker has absolutely never been more critical. Um, I think this is a fun opportunity to share with the pod something I share out in real life all the time. This concept that in commercial real estate, 
there's no such thing as market rent. Um, I know that's provocative, and I think it's true. Uh, it's not like the stock market with a million buyers and a million sellers constantly trading and retrading these shares of stock um, and resetting the price. Uh, real estate is inherently sticky and unique. Every buyer is unique. Every seller is unique. Every landlord, every tenant, every piece of property is unique. And these parties come together and establish a new price for the moment. You know, this idea that uh, comps, lease comps, sale comps, their comps are interesting generally, but not specifically. Like in my 36 years in this business, I've seen so many outliers where somebody had to transact or somebody transacted a certain way. Um, there's constant outliers. It's really dangerous to think that there's such a thing as market rent when you're transacting at a specific opportunity at a specific point in time with a particular tenant and a particular landlord. No such thing as market rent, says me. I don't disagree today. I think there's a case to be made that, you know, understanding very at a micro level what uh, comps and what deals have been done is a good indication of the motivations of that owner or that submarket and gives you good predictability from a budgeting or, or, uh, approval perspective as you're making decisions to, do I want to do this project or not? Um, uh, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to the quality of that individual negotiations and the motivations of you as the tenant, the landlord in that, in that moment. Right. I find, so I'm having, and I have to keep this very general, but, um, I think more today than I've ever had. And I've never worked, I guess, at a tenant rep firm other than the last year. So I, I, I see that with a green assault. But the, the tenant base, at least for large strategic tenants are becoming concerned with dual representation and firms, you know, our competitors that are working on behalf of all these institutional owners and developers and also representing them on large strategic deals. And a lot of these are, you know, large outsourcing projects and large outsourcing clients and, uh, you know, a structure that I've introduced and it's been introduced by others, but is really partnering on. So if you've got a large outsourcing and you work for, you know, one of these major banks or something, it's like, okay, well, how do you know you're getting a good deal? The market is not, uh, we haven't found the bottom yet, right? We haven't fully understood where we're going. How do you work with a firm that represents those owners either in your market or a market around the country um, and have them also representing you? And I've never seen uh, as much on a wide scale tenants really fully understand this or be concerned about it than I've had over the last number of months as they look um, to the future to say, like, how, how do I have confidence in my team when they're under tremendous pressure? Um, and this was a result I've been having the conversation more. If you remember, Brookfield fired John. I think you brought it up on one of our last pods. Brookfield fired Cushman Wakefield off some listings because they didn't move their headquarters there. So I've been, I've been having conversations with my network around it and everyone's really concerned about it. And it's interesting because, you know, to a certain segment of the market, it was not that concerning my team. We know we trust. And it's not really about that anymore. It's about does the firm have the ability at the leadership level to truly be unbiased in how they provide information and may help you make decisions. So it's just interesting. It's, uh, it's certainly very, uh, dynamic and individualized at that level, but, uh, I found it interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, um, consistent with that. You know, 
the brokers that serve the landlords are just doing their job. I don't fault them. I mean, some of them are actually really good at what they do. Um, this past week, uh, we, we kicked off an assignment like we had planned on doing first the year with a very creditworthy tenant looking for approximately two floors um, in downtown Seattle. And I told one of the listing brokers that they we were not going to be inspecting one of their properties, touring it, um, just given where their pricing was at. And I got a phone call later that afternoon uh, from the asset manager. It's a big institutional real estate landlord saying, hey, I just wanted to follow up. It sounds like we didn't make your tour list. Um, you know, like, I can't fault my broker. They're doing their job holding the line as they should be trying to promote rates. But the reality is um, I'm just calling you to let you know, here's what we'd be willing to do. And just gave me broad terms, right? Um, a lot different than that I was hearing from the listing broker who was doing their job. Right. I don't fault them for what they're doing, but they were um, kind of articulating exactly what might be possible. And so I, I say that just in the sense that, like, those phone calls don't happen unless people are starting to get pretty desperate. And this is a class A kind of tour, right? We're not looking at B buildings. And these asset managers, you know, the, the brokers themselves that serve them are, are, like I said, doing their job, doing everything they can to kind of remain optimistic um, and also promote the highest rents they can possibly, you know, substantiate, or at least try to substantiate for the sake of their client. Because no client wants to get on the phone with their broker and hear how bad the market is. But, and I th I'm sure they're all sick of hearing about it. Um, but I just thought that was rather interesting um, to get a call from an owner, you know, contradicting what their broker actually told me uh, for the sake of trying to just get on the tour list. They're just wanting that bad. Yeah, I, I, I see the perspective as the broker is doing their job. But if you have eliminated the building from contention before even getting in at bat, where the ownership is willing to do it, are they, the question I have is, are they doing their job? Or are they just towing the line because they don't want to upset their other clients? If they start, if one owner is willing to drop rents and chase a deal that they work on, but that same broker has to break from, you know, break from that level where the rest of their clients are telling them they need to be, is that create an issue for them to show that that broker is conflicted in how they approach the marketplace and they're conflicted between their landlord clients, never mind the tenant clients they have to work with. To me, that's an example of, of a broker being a, between a rock and a hard place. He's trying to do his job, but you can't serve multiple masters in a marketplace that's breaking apart as quickly as it is. And you look at where a lot of the transactions have been done most recently, especially in the fourth quarter, downtown Seattle. And, you know, nobody would really know this unless you're active representing the tenants. But the deals that got done or are getting done are with the brokers, Brian, to your point, that understand reality and command the respect from their client when they tell their client, I'm sorry, this is painful, but this is what it's going to take if you want to do a deal, right? Like this is this is where the market is in reality. Comps are insignificant or comps don't matter because they're rear facing their transactions that were negotiated, you know, sometimes six, 12 months ago, you don't have all the facts around that, you know, the specific transaction, there could be things that aren't even exposed, or made, um, made available to our knowledge. And yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I agree with you, like, there are people that are trying to hold the line uh, for the sake of just doing that. But if you want to close a deal in this market, it takes a lot more. Yep, your story's so good because it's exactly what is going to happen. It's the line breaking. You know, it's uh, over time. When they look at in your market, 
arguably you're one of the most important brokers. Now you know where that building can deliver. That line has been broken. And over time, more people will break ranks because they have to break ranks. They have to get tours. They have to have a shot. They have to get net bat. So this is the line sort of disintegrating uh, anecdotally. And this will happen with this two-year window of rising uh, vacancy rates. It's going to happen. They won't be able to hold the line over time. I mean, think about it from the perspective of class B. Like there's there's a number of brokers that I've worked with that are just they own the class B market and the class B market could be millions and millions of square feet. It's, it's highly desirable space in a different environment. Um, but they work for multiple owners, right? And they've got one or two owners or one owner that, that will go chase deals. The rest of the owners won't. They're being a lot of pressure to try to get rents up. So they, would they really be motivated to break ranks of that ownership pool? to try to go make deals when that brings underwriting significantly down and that knows, and then they know they can't make deals at other buildings. So that's, think about the world that they live in, right? And then now start to say, okay, those same brokers and those same firms now have to layer in, they control the tenants and they have to go give advice to tenants and then sit in a meeting. I know at firms I've been at, when it, when a, when the tenant is controlled by the firm, and they go to a, a building that's controlled by the firm and they get both sides of the deal. It is celebrated in those meetings. They get very, very excited. It's recognized that we did, we got both sides of the deal. So like there's no way to break from it when it's all around you. You're just in the middle of it. And it's, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm at a firm where you can, uh, because I lived this for 20 years. I'm grateful that I'm a firm where those, you know, those behind the scenes motivations are not um, are not something we have to deal with it. Okay, Brian, give us your prediction. Give us an actual number, class A inventory, class B inventory for office space. Where are we at at the end of the year? I'm looking for a number, not an explanation. I think rents are down 10% overall. Including class A? Yeah. Okay. Which is a pretty safe prediction because we don't know what it's 10% off of. I mean, this published rents. This rent's published. I think we dropped 10%. Okay. I don't think it's 20%. Like, you know, you, you could take subsets of that and get further reductions, but I think it's a safe 10% down. John and Owen, what do you guys think? You know, I think it's, it's, I know you want a number. So if I have to pick a number, I'm just going to say 10%. But what I, what I want to say um, to kind of add to that is that it's going to be, I think there's there's asset classes where it's going to fall greater than 10%. Well, this is just office space. No, I, I'm sorry. I mean, asset class in terms of like class A, class B, class C. Got it. All, okay. all office space. I think um, my prediction is that for the most premium buildings, you're going to see little to no fall at all, like possibly zero. I don't think rents will grow, of course, but you might see them just stay stagnant. Um, for the buildings that are you know, built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even some in the early 2000s, I think you could see a massive sell-off at even a 15% reduction in rent. Yeah, my, my answer, you may not like it, but I, I hate to tell you, it, it, it depends. It depends on which market we're talking about. It depends on a lot of things. For example, in San Francisco, where you already have buildings trading at 30 and 40 cents on the dollar, um, where, you know, $100 rent buildings can be delivered now at maybe $40 annual rent. Like, it's not a question of how much lower these rents are going to go. It's a question of how many other building owners will join them at that new price level. So so 
Um, I don't see that market going lower than 40 cents on the dollar. By God, that's awfully low. Um, it's just a question of how many more need to join them there. And then there's, you know, back to my example, Columbus, Ohio. Okay, it's it's at 9.1% vacancy rate, projected to climb to 9.5 by 2026. If I'm if you believe my DiMaggio line of 10%, then rents could be rising in Columbus, Ohio. So it depends. Okay. You, you ever done a deal in Columbus, Ohio, Joe? If you've had, you'd know why. There's this natural buffering that occurs over time with with markets, right? Um, you know, you you and we're gonna talk about industrial in, in a moment here, but you just think about how developers react to what's happening on the demand side with absorption and what happens, you know, when there's massive amounts of supply, developers stop building and eventually the market catches up to itself, hopefully, right? What's changed with office space is instead of there being, you know, a little bit of net absorption every single year and in 10 years, you know, maybe we'll be able to catch up to the inventory that we built. Instead, there's been largely negative absorption and even netting out new deliveries, we'd still be worsening and worsening. So, you know, when we, when we talk about where's the market going to be at the end of 2024 and making a prediction, it's with the background that these predictions are super hard to make because you don't know how realistic landlords are going to be and whether they will react within a year's period. Um, it's also important to note that the market falling by 10 to 15%, as you know, Brian and Owen have said, in particular for Class B um, office space, I would argue that that reduction in rent is not reflective at all of the health of the Class B office market. And then the Class B office market is actually damaged significantly more so than 10 to 15%. Yet it's just simply not reflected in the rents and likely will not be reflected in the rents, you know, before 2026 or 2027 or 2028. It's going to take a really long time for the market to work through that system. But recognizing that, I think that uh, recognizing all these factors and there, there are some unknowables and then the market isn't perfectly efficient, trying to guess how efficient the market will be, my prediction would be that you see, you know, true class A plus buildings actually increase rents, um, at, at least in no and on a nominal basis, right? On, on an inflation adjusted basis, um, or rather on a non-inflation adjusted basis in 2024. Uh, and again, that just for the class A plus buildings and well-located areas. I think that the cost to operate these buildings um, may continue to go up and that that's going to cause landlords to increase prices. I've realized that that isn't a market reason. It's just your expenses go up. So you charge the consumer more. I could see that happening. And a lot of these buildings, you know, you think about the class A plus inventory in LA that's located in favorable spots. There's just no space. I mean, the office where... Uh, you know, that I'm sitting in right now is a three building, 800,000 square foot project that's 98% leased. If you want to move into this project, you you basically can't. Why would rents come down in a project like that? It just, it, it's very unlikely that that, that would happen. And I, I would argue that the project we're in, it's an A plus building, but there's other buildings that are better located that are even slightly more leased and have slightly higher demand. So I think the A plus market is going to go up between, you know, uh, zero and 5%, somewhere in there, and that the Class B market is going to go down by at least 10% and potentially upwards of 20%. I just want to add on and shout out to my friends in Columbus, Ohio, and, and uh, speak to the, you know, you're harshing on, my, my, on Columbus there uh, a bit, Brian. It has no, it's, it, 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 it's nothing to do with Columbus. It's talking about those are just 
illiquid markets that are small, very intimate markets with local companies. There's not a big swing ever in those markets. I've done like so I tell people want to look Cleveland, Ohio is one of my favorite markets to go to. I love it I, because I was there 25 years ago and it, where it is today, it's, it's a great downtown. It's fun. It's, it's really great. Like small town USA is with some of my clients is where I've done a lot of my work and it's no reflection of Columbus, but just there's not a lot of building there. There's not a lot of development. It's not a lot of building. There's not a lot of tenant demand and there's not, not also a lot of tenant troughs, right? So, uh, it's just steady eddy and those markets are very inelastic in terms of uh, impacts to the stuff we're talking about, right? It's not institutional. Um, so it's hard to compare those to the coasts or some of the major hubs that are very institutional owners because Tucker, you're right. The market for class B should be down 50% period, but. 99% of owners can't chase the market down 25% or they would hand the keys back, right? So there is a, there is a floor into which current ownership groups can chase the rents down before their equity positions are gone and they have to give back the keys. So most buildings won't go there. They're just going to continue to try to see if they can capture some demand, existing tenants that building next door that needs to expand or the tenant next door that needs to expand. And they're going to try and try and try until the point where they just immediately turn the keys over and it's gone. And that takes years for it to happen because nobody wants to walk away. Everybody wants to continue to try. Their sales organizations are effectively free because landlord brokers don't, they don't make a salary. They get paid when deals happen. So um, they just continue to crack the whips, try to get their ownership, their, their sales organizations to do deals nothing happens and two three years from now the buildings may trade i'm so glad we clarified that you weren't harshing on columbus ohio and no, isn't I, it ir ironic that if you owned it if you have to own an office building it would have been better to own it in columbus than in san francisco it turns out okay let's take a little bit of a turn here and switch from office to talking about industrial so same question as before where do we think the industrial market is at the end of the year uh you can start with why uh, I know it took us uh, about 25 minutes to actually make our percentage reductions or increases in the office market because we wanted to explain the impossibility of an accurate prediction. Uh, so we can start with those, start with your your thinking, your narrative. Uh, why is the market going to do what you think it's going to do? And then we can come back and provide actual uh, real predictions that we can keep ourselves accountable for uh, come December. I just want to know that this prediction is in protest because everybody else got the caveat there. I went first. I said one number and no one else did. So I'm not going to forget that. I'll go first on industrial. So I think the uh, deliveries are a big part of the story in industrial. You know, the market was so white hot that uh, there was so much product being designed, planned and under construction that we see a downturn in demand in this current moment, um, a slight downturn. Um, coupled with the final the delivery of all this uh, square footage, which is going to put downward pressure on rents. I think we saw it level off in 2023, and I think we'll see, I'll pay a 5% decline in industrial rents off their highs in 2024. Yeah, I can go next. Um, I I don't think the market's going to necessarily go up, but I think it's going to be similar to what the office market's experience, where you're going to see a flight to quality. But keep in mind, everyone, you know, the industrial market was white hot during COVID, and everyone was leasing as much space as they possibly could 
oftentimes taking more than they necessarily needed. And so I think the, the industrial market right now is actually um, is giving you a false sense of you know what is actually occurring, which is that there's a lot of tenants right now that are just in too much space, uh, thinking that you know the the supply was going to never kind of right size and that they had to take what they had to take uh, for the sake of being um, at risk of being out of space. And I think it's indicative of what happened in Seattle in, in our industrial markets um, in 2023, which is that all but the North End experienced uh, negative absorption, meaning more space was given back to the market than that which was leased. And um, substantially, we're talking like 100 to 200 basis points of the overall supply, you know, depending on the market. And so we've got, uh, and then coupled with that, we had a lot of construction being delivered. And so while I don't think it's going to be a free fall, much like the class B office market, I think we're going to see, um, you know, give or take zero to negative 5% rent growth um, in 2024. Zero to 5% in industrial, it might as well be like, you know, zero to 100 on the speed limit. It's a, that's a wide range, Owen, come on. I, uh, a 5% so re- reduction? I mean, zero to five? Oh, oh I think you said reduction. Okay. I no, 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 no. I'm saying either rents. So that's said another way. Let's clarify that for our listeners. I think it, you're going to see industrial rents either kind of just level off and stay as they are or potentially drop as much as 5%. Okay. Got it. I see. I'm, a, I'm actually just to cut to it. I'm going to tell you that rent on the industrial side are going to grow in 2024. Uh, unfortunately, I think they're going to grow at you know, zero to 1%. Um, year over year. And I say this be, with a heavy heart, um, because vacancy rate for the first time since 2000 was just reported in the fourth quarter of 5.2%. First time since 2000, over 5%. There was a 27% reduction in leasing volume in the fourth quarter. Um, <clears throat> You know, the historical average over the last 15 years for vacancy is 6.4%. As you can see, quick math, 5.2 is still below historical uh, averages, which to me tells you it's a healthy market. It's not the pre-pandemic to the moon and back market. So it's going to be, you know, slow and steady, slight increase, leveling off, I think, where we're going to see a spike in rents is 25, 26 timeframe because there's been a, the spigot has been shut off on development. And I will tell you that just like the class A market, class B market, users are really starting to understand there's a major difference in their business, in the quality and amount of space that they need to take in industrial by taking newer product, better position, better docks, better clear heights, obviously, but just better product for their people, for their equipment, for their technology. So I think you're going to start to see a further bifurcation in the market. But overall, I think the market continues to go up slightly. I really enjoy that Owen and Brian are uh, potentially only apart by like one to two percent difference in how they think the market will perform. Yeah, Brian's dunking on Owen like you're not going to like to hear this, but you know, as if uh, you know, a, the market could go down, it could stay the same, or it could go down by five percent. And Brian, with the contrarian take, it might go up by one to two percent year over year. I guess we'll see. Uh, I think that's all within the margin of error of uh, being insignificant personally, but yeah, it it is really interesting. So some something that Owen said that I think warrants digging into more um, the flight to quality in industrial real estate that Owen referenced 
it's significantly less extreme than the flight to quality that exists in office space, right? Industrial, you know, manufacturing, logistics, like people have had to work in these warehouses for the whole duration of the pandemic. They usually can't function without physical labor, labor in these locations. So you start thinking about flight to quality, right? People aren't going, gosh, our warehouse isn't 40 foot clear with ESFR sprinklers. I'm not coming into work, right? The people component of the flight to quality is significantly less relevant in industrial. Of course, I'm sure people appreciate coming into a nicer warehouse than an older warehouse that's just, you know, been beaten up really badly, but it's, it's, it's much less extreme. The other piece, um, the other point that I want to make is that there, there is no path pretty much anywhere, uh, in any major like port market in the U S to creating more class B product, right? Like you just, it's, it's like trying to manufacture a, uh, old motel, right? Like the only way to make an old motel with a super low cost basis and, you know, was to build it 20 years ago, right? So there's a lot of this class B product that no new construction will ever like literally ever be able to compete with from a cost standpoint. And in a market like Southern California, you know, between Los Angeles and Illinois Empire, you know, dealing with well over billion square feet of industrial real estate, you think about the percentage of the available market and the, a, a very significant portion of it is new construction. And if you were looking for a class B building that might be you know, a 20 or 20 foot, foot, uh, foot clear height building instead of a 36 foot clear height building, it's actually harder to find that building um, at a lower price because there are companies that can make use of it. So um, I think the class B market actually has a lot more resilience on pricing than the class A new construction market has for industrial. And the reason for that is that if you look at the percentage of class B buildings that were built 15, 20 years ago that are occupied, it's a higher occupancy rate than the class A plus market because such a large percentage of the class A plus market is new construction that's now being delivered into, as Brian said, this market where demand has fallen by, you know, 28% from, you know, pandemic crazy levels. So I think that context is important to think about uh, and that you're really only measuring rental rates on the market of available space today. And if the market of available space today represents, you know, 50% new construction and 50% second gen, and of that 50% second gen, some, some is, you know, class B at a much lower price point, um, with a type of product that hasn't been delivered frequently that might have lower clear height at a lower price. Um, those are two or three very different things. And I, I think that's worth noting. Um, I, I agree with Brian. I think that we're going to see industrial rents continue to climb, but nominally. Uh, in 2024. I don't think that they will go down in the majority of markets just because, as Brian said, we are at a uh, still relatively a historic uh, low, um, like relative to a generalized market. You know, the average is in the sixes and we're in the low fives. So I, I don't think that we will see landlords capitulate and lower prices, but I also don't think that they have significant pricing power to increase rents. Despite the 100 basis points between Brian's, Brian's prediction and mine, I, one thing we can agree on exactly is I do believe you're going to see significant increases in 25 and 26. And I get it. I'm looking out two years and that's a bit of a crystal ball. Um, but Brian hit the nail on the head on that one, which is, you know, construction was all but just halted uh, over the past 12 to 18 months. Um, so we're going to, you know, whatever leasing does occur this year is by and large buildings that exist. 
not those that are being built. And therefore, I think we could see it, you know, we could see vacancy fall significantly in 25. I'm challenging you guys. Here's what I think you're missing. Um, and here's why I did mention the Maginot line of 10%, which typically demarcates rising rents or falling rents. Um, and industrial is only at five point something or 6%. So why am I predicting a 5% decline in industrial? Well, here's why. Uh, the, the It's been so frothy through the pandemic with these sort of 30 and 40% annual increases in rents. I call that the pandemic premium. Um, and now that there's even just a slight pullback in demand for industrial, I believe the landlords have to give up that pandemic premium and get back to something like a more reasonable uh, rent number. That's the 5% they got to give back um, in 2024. Yeah, I think we're saying the same thing, John, but I think that pullback still produces a rent growth. It wasn't enough based upon overall size of the industrial market. There wasn't enough leasing, in my opinion, done in that finite period of time to pull the whole market with it. Um, so I think we're saying the same thing. I think the impacts are where we disagree. I, you know, what I would like our listeners to take out of this too is a couple of things. One is the market's going to continue to be very strong on the industrial side. If you think if zero to five percent pullback or zero to five percent rent growth, it's still strong. It's still a healthy market. The, <clears throat> the biggest challenge I see for, for, some of our clients are the ones that are in second generation uh, or second generation class B warehouses where they've had, they've had the uh, ability to keep their rents extremely low. They haven't had uh, renewals in a long time. They haven't had any of the impacts of the rent spikes through COVID uh, or the new construction market is not something that they, they've ever contemplated or ever will contemplate. Well, their landlords hire brokers or their landlords are smart, are smart, uh, investors and they're looking at the overall market. So we're, you know, we were just in a meeting recently and this particular company, uh, is paying in the single digits for a warehouse in kind of urban, an urban location, semi-urban location. Well, if you look at market stats, that rent is 50% of market for that space and for, for old second generation, 18, 20 foot clear, just you know, the older product, their rent is still 50% of market. So what does that tenant do? What, what, where they, what does that owner do? They're not going to be able to pay $20 a foot for that space. But if you look at market statistics, that's a $20 uh, square per square foot location and rent. Those types of decisions and those types of negotiations are going to be happening a lot around the country because as, as the overall market has just grown, there's still this group of small businesses, smaller companies, urban locations that either are going to get left behind and be forced to move significantly farther outside the city or their owners are going to have to work with them in terms of creating a micro market or their own market to make some sort of a reasonable um, expectation or regional uh, negotiation around what rent should be for that building because otherwise there's just not going to be able to afford it. It can't fit into their cost stack uh, based upon, you know, with the way that they operate. We were talking about this very briefly earlier, you know, this idea of, of buffering supply. Um, I think given the concentration of uh, institutional owners within industrial real estate, I mean, you think about Link and Prologis and the percentage of market that they control and also the respect that they have from their peers in the industry and the amount of developers that are out there. I think that industrial uh, historically has done a better job of buffering its supply than other uh, asset types have. And that's why we saw 
this massive surge. I mean, it's one of the reasons we saw this massive surge in pricing during COVID. I mean, when COVID happened, there were a lot of developers that said, we're not building anything right now. We're hitting pause. And that created that major supply gap that ultimately contributed to those, you know, 40, 50% year over year rental rate growth that we experienced in industrial and a lot of the major markets. And we, we've seen the same type of thing happen now. I mean, if you're uh, trying to construct industrial real estate in this environment with the cost to construct still being very high, the cost of land being very high, and also most critically, the cost to get construction financing being insanely high compared to, um, you know, the last, call it 10 years of, of development. That's why we're seeing this buffering supply. And John, I, I agree with you, right? The market has some headwinds, but I think even in light of those headwinds, we're still going to see rental growth and we're going to be setting ourselves up uh, for another supply shortage that exists in 25 and 26 that could really meaningfully uh, increase rents. Um, not 40, 50%. Um, but I think if you were to look at the, uh, you know, COVID pricing and what happened and you normalize for, um, you normalize for the rapid change in how people were, you know, buying products, right? The shift to e-commerce, uh, and then people overstocking inventory because of supply chain issues. If you normalize for that and you only look at supply, I think we could see similar type of supply challenges that exist. And that is more interest rate uh, dependent than obviously pandemic uh, dependent. Okay, predictions are in for industrial real estate. Uh, thanks for indulging me, everyone. Um, let's start getting a little bit closer to wrapping up uh, today's episode. But before we do, uh, I'm very curious, do you all have any other predictions of what will happen in the corporate real estate industry this year? Any trends, anything that you are finding large you know, corporate users of space or corporate directors of real estate or teammates, uh, you know, in a company's corporate real estate department that are thinking about any initiatives you're seeing, uh, you know, anything like that, any emerging trends that we can be, you know, sharing, you know, on the cutting edge of uh, for our listeners. I've got something in that and we don't have time to go into it today, but I'll introduce it here and we can discuss it on the next pod. Um, I just had a call with a fascinating um, corporate real estate leader, uh, Suzanne Heidelberger, who just left Fidelity Investments. And she, working with Rob Cartwright over the last four years, basically rolled out a, a hospitality workplace strategy for Fidelity Investments. And maybe I've just been late to catch on, but this concept of hospitality as a means to lure your team back into the office um, is really rich and really deep. I think I might write an article on this. Again, maybe you've all already familiar with this, but uh, Hospitality is going to be a theme and more and more companies are going to lean into. Um, by the way, Suzanne is available. If there's any corporate real estate teams listening to this pod, um, I would definitely tap into her talents uh, and we can talk about that more on a, on a future pod. Yeah, I think this is a natural progression of the industry <clears throat> and one that I think some of the best firms uh, in the space have taken this approach for many years, I believe. Um, the The... You know, there's two things that are getting people back into the office today. It's food and it's mandates. And other than that, people are, are shying away from the office, uh, by and large. So if you take the mandates off the table, like many companies have, which, um, is, you know, a, a cultural, uh, shock or just a cultural change for many organizations, hospitality, bringing the, bringing the hospitality industry, the hotel industry 
approach to the office space is something that a lot of companies were doing it anyway because they wanted the culture that that had a lot of high level service, high touch um, interactions with their people. Uh, they found that that was the 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 way to drive uh, innovation, the way to drive efficiency, the way to drive just a, a great corporate culture. Have been doing it for a long time, and it's great to see an industry like fund accounting, financial services, and a Fidelity who's headquartered in Boston and a you know a a beachhead for um, demand in the city of Boston. They're building a new headquarters on the water that's or retrofitting a new headquarters on the water that's stunning. It's a effectively an office tower on its side, extending out into the pier. Um, and a very logistically difficult project to renovate. It's um, World Trade Center is what we call it. Infidelity being, uh, you know, Fidelity of Boston um, is a, a great, you know, they've, they've committed to the city and they've committed to the seaport, which is just a great story in itself. It's great to hear that they're coming along and, and taking that approach because I think it started with the tech industry in a lot of ways on how to get uh, the best talent and compete in a very difficult tech environment to bring in the best uh, engineers and, and um, employees. And it's extended itself into many other areas trying to get employees back post pandemic. I'm going to follow Brian, uh, if you don't mind, just because we seem to be at odds today by a <laughs> hundred basis points. And maybe we're at odds over this, uh, this prediction by give or take a percentage point or not. But um, my prediction is, um, about office space and about these mandates, because I'm going to disagree with Brian. Food does not get people back to work. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, people are like, meh, I, I'm not going to exchange a free meal for being able to stay at home and, and work from my home office. Um, I would ask our listeners, uh, those that have office space, is ask yourself if your office can, you know, uh, inspire, call it groundbreaking ideas, discoveries, collaboration, thoughtful work if that space is a place people want to be. And this may sound touchy-feely for some, but I I'm a firm believer in uh, uh, you know, the factor of joy as well. Can can your office you know, even evoke joy for your, for your teammates? Um, some might laugh and scoff at that comment, but um, if that's the case, I guess they probably work in a very, you know, bland office space and haven't actually experienced working in a high performing space. And so as someone who represents companies, uh, exclusively, um, I just believe that, you know, we can provide our teammates with an exceptional place to work. Um, one that brings people back to the office, um, without coercion. Imagine if your people came back under their own volition, I'm not suggesting they're going to come back five days a week. Okay. But imagine if people willingly came back and there was not even the word use using the word mandate. I hate that word. I also don't like the word pandemic or COVID. That's behind us. Like I, I, I try and go out of my way not to use those words because it's a thing of the past. And, and mandates, I think, are becoming a thing of the past, too. It's either you're going to become a hybrid company and you'll have your, you know, your work hours as, you know, dictated by the senior executives is what people need to adhere to, or you're going to be an office that comes together as a team and performs high performing work. I'm consistently seeing companies and it's not just tech, it's, it's fire companies, you know, financial insurance, real estate, et cetera, um, lease more office space. And they're doing so in either buildings that are incredible or, or buildings that are, 
you know, class A minus in nature, but they're spending a tremendous amount of money, much of which is being funded by the landlord, if not all of it, as part of a transaction um, or a tenant improvement allowance to create really cool space. And even and it's even for companies that are on a three day a week schedule. And so my prediction uh, for 2024 is that some p- companies will, you know, stick with what they've got because um, it works for them for their own independent reasons. And other companies are going to try and figure out how do we create delight? How do we create joy? How do we create a space that inspires our team to come together? Because after all, we are a company. We're not a we're not an institution of individuals that work from home. Some companies might adhere to that, but there are other companies that believe in culture, believe in you know employee retention, and believe in employee happiness, and are going to do everything they can to get people back. And that goes beyond free lunch. That that starts with a foundational support supporting office that you know is consistent with that culture they want to promote. So there's my prediction. Okay. Well, we we got to get deeper on that on a future blog. Yeah, we have, to, blog. we have to dig into that just a little. I I so, but not the, today. Da- the data that I've I've heard Owen is that that all, everything that you've that you've said is what companies want to believe gets people in the office. What actually gets them in the office is a great a great environment, a great place to come back to, hundred percent. But secondly, free food. It's it's the number one driver to get people to show up on a hybrid basis or they show up the days that there's free food. It's just, it's a, if you're going to come to the office, why don't you go on the days that there's food? Now, is it, is it they want to go to the office and the food gets them there or is it they're going anyway and the, the company's providing food? I would say it's the former rather than the latter, but that's, you know, we all want to be, you know, believers that a magnificent, office space and a culture is going to get people in the office. I think we've learned that by and large, that's not the case today, especially with younger workers. Okay. I will attempt to wrap up the show for the fourth time. Got to stop Brian, Owen and John from, uh, you know, attacking each other over their 1% uh, differences in views. Uh, That does conclude episode 26 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider podcast. Uh, We look forward to being back in another two weeks with another episode. Really fun to be um, into 2024 and recording uh, for the second year. Uh, And we really appreciate everyone that has been along on the journey with us, that continues to listen, to send in questions, uh, and for everyone's support. So thank you, and we'll see you in two weeks.